Sundays like this, I'm like, how, how, how do I follow that up? I really don't know. Somebody just sent a message and said, darn you, Jennings, and your, your emotions. You got, they said they, they weren't crying, though. It was allergies. That was, that's what it was. Guys, you know what? Here's, here's the deal. Like we, we are just crazy enough to believe that this right here has power. That this right here can change people's lives. Now, some of us showed up this morning and we're like, we're just... Just a few nice words is what we need, Ryan. Just a few nice words of worship, a few nice words from God's word. Um, I really, really hope that you do hear some nice words this morning, but I, I also hope that you hear some very challenging words this morning. And I hope that you don't walk away today unchanged by what we read in God's word this morning. Because, again, we're crazy enough to believe that words matter. All the words in here matter and that these words change lives. It's changed my life. Obviously, you hear from Brian, that's changed his life. We are, we're going to end the service today in a little bit different way than we usually do. just want to prepare you for it uh, and prime you for it is that we're going to have a, a time of testimony because I know no better way to prove that the Bible does change things than to hear how it has changed people's lives. And so if you would like to do that at the end of service today, we would welcome you to do that and to speak uh, into what God has done in your life through the word, through Jesus Christ and his words. And just to illustrate that words really do matter, all words matter, not just all words, because the Bible would tell us that Jesus says that, that not, even, not even the smallest little mark in the Bible will pass away. And, and, and even, even commas and even punctuation matter. It matters so much. I want, the story I want to tell you of this woman, this woman was overseas and she had actually been on a cruise on a trip. Her husband had to stay home and he was still on business and tending to business. And she found this bracelet that she fell in love with. I know, like ladies, I'm talking about diamonds upon diamonds upon diamonds. How this bracelet was so special, it was a $75,000 bracelet. And she texts her husband and she says, can I get it? <laughs> and he's in the middle of a business meeting and he, he intends to type to her, no, period, price too high. Well, in the haste of his meeting and him texting and auto-correcting, it doesn't say no, period, price too high. What does it say? No price too high. And so she says, oh, thank goodness I can get this $75,000 bracelet. You better believe that thing was a source of conversation for years to come. Guys, all words matter down to the last comma, down to the last Period, And it's this truth that leads us into our text for this morning. We've been talking for the last month, for the last five weeks, about this great gift that we have been given. Not just the Bible, but we'll see today that God's very word in our lives and how that changes things. We end our study on how God's word remains relevant to us today in our lives right now. And I can think of no better place to go. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We have been reading these verses for the last month. And we come today and focus all of our time. We cannot go from a month of studying the Bible and not talk out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And the words go like this. Paul says to his 
son in the faith, Timothy. Now, just, I want to set this up, actually. I'm going to start at verse 14, but I, I want you to understand, because he says here in verse 14, but you, Timothy, why is he saying but you? Now, if you look at the first 13 verses that come before that, in my Bible, up at chapter 3, the heading there says, the danger of the last days. And what Paul has done for Timothy for 13 verses is say, Timothy, things are going to get bad. Really, really bad. And he, he goes through this whole list of what will happen to people in the last days, which I've told you before, not next week or month or year but ever since Jesus came to this earth the first time and he went back to heaven we are living in last days and so he says to Timothy these are all the things that will happen people will love themselves they will they will be unloving and cold and cruel towards one another they will love money and they, all this list of stuff and actually if you read it you think to yourself wow this does sound a whole lot like today and he says, all these things, it's going to happen in the last days. And, and Timothy, people are going to turn away from the truth of the word. And Timothy, people are going to go off the rails. And he says in verse 13, they, the teachers, the leaders actually will deceive others. And they will themselves be deceived. In verse 14, but you, you, Timothy, must remain faithful. In some of your translations that say, you must continue is the word that's used there and I think so many times guys we just assume in life and we assume in the Christian life that people are just going to continue but what happens is continuing doesn't happen by default actually in life you don't just continue to do anything if you set out and to have a workout regimen and you want to uh, exercise for for 30 minutes and then lift for another 25 minutes it doesn't just magically happen does it you don't just continue in that. You must remain, what he says here, the same words, you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. Timothy, you know they're true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. Primarily his grandmother, his mother, Paul himself have taught Timothy these words. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures. It's a very interesting word, by the way, Scripture. He uses it twice. It's a very interesting word that we're going to talk about towards the end. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. They have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. And then we get to the big, heavy verses here. All Scripture. And do you know what I mean? And do you know what Paul means when he says all Scripture is inspired by God? Every last word of this book has been inspired by God. It is useful to teach us. Here's what it does. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. <gasps> How dare the word do that? Corrects me. I, I like the first things here, Ryan. It teaches me, all right? But it corrects me? It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses his word to prepare and equip his people to do every good Work In a December 10th, 1990 version of the U.S. News and World Report, this was seen on the cover of that magazine. If you can see it, I'm not sure you can up here. The title of it is, Who Wrote the Bible? And then underneath it, the surprising new theories. There's always surprising new theories about who wrote 
the Bible? What is the Bible? Why does the Bible matter? All those questions are caught up in that one question there. Who wrote the Bible? And here in 2 Timothy 3, we have Scripture's definitive answer to that question. Who wrote the Bible? Why does it matter? But before we get rolling too far and too fast, I just want to take a step back and consider the impact of the Bible and whether you realize it or not, the Bible has an immense impact and has on society for thousands of years. The Bible, your Bible, not necessarily your Bible per se, but the Bible itself is the highest selling and the most widely distributed book ever. By, guys, by, a, by a landslide, it's not even close. Since the year 1815, over 5 billion copies of the Bible have been sold and distributed. It's been translated into 1,442 languages, and other portions of the Bible have been translated into 1,145 languages, and so the total number of languages that you would find this book right here in puts it at about 2,500 translations. It's safe to say, guys, that the Bible has had a tremendous impact on the lives of countless people. And yet with all of those numbers and with the truth of what I just said, it's often one of the most maligned and misunderstood and neglected documents in all of history. And guys, it's no truer than in the world and the moment that we find ourselves living in today. The attitudes of people towards the Bible, if you were to go out and ask the average person about the Bible today, they'd probably laugh at you. But like, you actually believe the stuff in here. You actually literally believe what comes out of here. Now, here, just as a little aside, I'm going to chase just a small little rabbit trail here, and this will make some people scratch their heads, but what I'm, what I'm saying when we read the word, when you come to the word, is not that you read everything in this Bible literally. You understand that, right? This Bible is written in a bunch of different styles and poetry and history and, and all these things. And, and let me give you an example. When Jesus says, if, if your eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Pluck it out. Now, I'm looking at you guys, all right, and I see two eyes and every head in here, all right? So it tells me that you're not reading the Bible, literally. Or he says, if your hand causes you to sin, what? Everybody hold their hands up? Yeah, I thought so, two of them. I thought there's two hands for every person here. This is the way I would say it, guys, when it comes to the Bible. And somebody, and people will say this, like, you, you literally believe this? Well, maybe, maybe not by the sense of that word, literally, but you better believe that everything that we read in here, we take very, very seriously. That it means something. Everything has meaning in God's word here. People misunderstand the word. They laugh off the word. The attitudes of people in this world today towards the Bible are widely divergent. Some people would say, this is, it's just another book. I mean, it's kind of like all the religious writings, isn't it? But some people would say it is, it is the book. And I'm hoping that you would say that yourself. This is, guys, no, just, this is not a book. This is the book that we find guidance for our lives from. In the late 18th century, the renowned French philosopher Voltaire, I got a, I got a picture of this strapping lad up here. Oh, 
Doesn't it look so good? I mean, if I could grow my hair out like that, you better believe I'd be doing that. Voltaire uh, was very, very hostile towards the Christian faith and particularly the Bible. And he was quoted as saying, towards the end of his life, a hundred years from my death, this is a pretty big statement, by the way, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will simply be a museum piece. Irrelevant. Useless. A crusty old book filled with words that no one cares about. It will be dead. And that was at the end of the 1700s, and the same spirit and the same thoughts still resonate today. People say, come on. I mean, there's, there's some stuff in there that's good, but most of this stuff, like, it doesn't really apply, does it? It doesn't really go with our lives. And Voltaire says it himself, it will in a hundred years be a museum piece. What's very ironic about the whole thing is that shortly after he said this phrase, he was dead. In another twist of irony, upon Voltaire's death, not long after making this statement, his home was not just sold to anybody, but it was auctioned off in this big public spectacle. And do you know who bought that house? The French Bible Society. <laughs> I tell you, God has a sense of humor. He really does. Thousands upon thousands, if not millions of copies of the Bible were printed and distributed from that house of a man who said the Bible will never amount to anything. It'll be dead. It'll be done. It'll have its time. It'll live its life. Guys, this book right here is no ordinary book. I really and truly want you to feel that and to know that and to hear that this morning. This book is no ordinary book. Now, we may sometimes read it in a very ordinary way or in a very casual and haphazard way. Stop. This is no ordinary book. According to some research, 88% of American households own a Bible. With the average number of Bibles per household coming in at 4.7. That is wild to me, by the way. F almost five Bibles per household in America. And I bet you right now you're thinking to yourself, yep, yep, there's that one. I got two, three. Yeah, you do it and do the math. I actually believe that probably most of you here would go way over five Bibles in your house. But the sad fact of it is almost five Bibles per household, but only 19% of Americans are engaged Bible readers. Only, only 19, 88% of households own a Bible, almost five in every house, but only not even, not even a quarter of people are engaged Bible readers. And by that, they define engaged as those who read the Bible at least four times a week. And guys, it's not about a number. It's not about how many times you do it. It's not for how long you do it. It's how you engage with this Bible, how you open yourselves up to this Bible and let this Bible get into you. And if you think 19% for engaged Bible readers is a tragically low number, imagine how small the number is for those who would be deemed as transformed, changed, renewed, different Bible readers. That number would be minuscule. Because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. How this one book right here, that is more than a book, it is no ordinary book, has the ability to so radically transform people's lives. 
I mean, what is it, guys? I mean, like, you think about it, and you're like, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's a really great book, but, I, like, can I be really honest with you, Ryan? Sometimes it just bores me. I mean, sometimes, Ryan, there are parts of it that I just really don't like. I don't, I don't like what it says to me. What, what in the world keeps this book on the top of the bestseller list year after year after year and has for some time now, as I mentioned? What keeps this book right here in people's homes and on the tip of their minds? And Paul gives the unabashed answer quickly and clearly at the end of his letter to Timothy, which, by the way, if you're looking at this, this is, this is the end of Paul's life. This is very well the last, the, the last words that Paul writes, especially to Timothy, but maybe to anybody. And so these are very important words. And what does Paul say here at the end? Why does this book matter so much? Why is this book so relevant to our lives for all time? And it simply is this, guys, and it's not a brain buster. It's not rocket science. The Bible is God's word. It is God's words. And I know you're sitting there thinking, like, I came and showed up for this sucker today? Like, like dude, give me something better than this. But, but I don't think we often understand and catch what Paul is saying here when he talks about this book being God's words. And that gives us the first truth that I want to explore just a bit this morning. I mean, three things that I want to talk about, about God's word. And the first one is that there is a distinct uniqueness to God's word. And you ask yourself, what, what? What's so unique about this word? Guys, what Paul says here is not only is it God's word or God's words, but it is, it is God's breathed out word. I, just, I want you to think about that for a moment and what he is really saying here about this word being breathed out. Now, in my translation and probably many of your translations that you have there in your Bible, the word is what? It's not breathed out, but it's what? I, an I word inspired, all right? That's a tricky, tricky word. It's actually not the best translation. The best translation is literally breathed out. Inspired is way too weak of a word, actually, for what Paul is trying to communicate here. And guys, this is a massive, massive truth. I mean, there are a lot of people in life who will concede, you know what, the Bible, the Bible is pretty inspiring most of the time. I mean, kind of like a a great piece of poetry or art or a, or a film, sort of like a, like a Rembrandt or a writing from Shakespeare. It's very inspiring. We speak of artists and we speak of poets and we speak of musicians and even athletes being inspired or giving inspired performances. And what that means is that we have witnessed a performance that is legendary. It's out of the ordinary. And sometimes we use that word when we're talking about us being inspired or feeling lifted. have those feelings and we have those performances of little known athletes that would just touching and chalker sits at home and he cries when he hears some of those sort of like that's that's what we think of when we think about I'm, I'm inspired by that or that story or that person and what they do is inspiring the trouble is that this version of inspiration in our world and in our vocabulary doesn't even get close to what Paul and the other biblical writers are speaking of when they say that God's word is inspired. 
I mean, many of us can get behind the idea that the Bible was written by creative and inspiring men, if you will, but there's only one problem for starters when we think about the people who wrote this Bible. If you knew the background of some of these guys who wrote the Bible, they were not academic at all. Their lives were not inspiring at all. They were shepherds. They were farmers. Many of them were just your ordinary blue-collar guys, kind of like you and me. And some people would ask, and they do ask, they're like, how in the world can God inspire Scripture by having faulty men to write it? Very uninspiring guys to write it. To which I say this. Guys, people of the world, if God has the capacity to create the universe with just one word, I think that God can make sure that a book gets written in his unique way, with a transforming message. In the book of 2 Peter, I think Peter does a great job of explaining how in the world this process of inspiration works, because it is sort of mesmerizing. It is sort of confusing. How in the world does God so inspire his word and write through men that exactly what he wants to say gets Said. That's the process of inspiration. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 20, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture, Scripture itself, ever came from a prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. And then listen to these last words. No, those prophets, those writers were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. The term there for move is a nautical theme. It's a picture that we would get if, if a, a ship throws up its sails and the wind is into the sails. That's, that's how people write scripture that transforms lives. It's not people who are inspired. It's not people. It's not these men who are inspiring. It is God's word that is inspired. Blown along by the Holy Spirit. Still others would concede that the Bible has many inspiring parts to it. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that the authors who wrote it were inspired or inspiring, or even that the scriptures themselves are inspiring, although scripture can be very inspiring. The main thought here, and I don't want you to miss it, is that the word, these words are inspired. Guys, the Bible is what he's saying here. There's a very important word that he used it is God-breathed. It is the very breath of God. I want you to think about that as you read the Bible this week. If that transforms and makes your thinking shift just a little bit. What I, guys, what you are reading every time that you sit down to read this book here, breath of God. And guys, that, here, here, here's what that doesn't mean. That does not mean that God blew in some sort of mystical way it simply means that God, I want, you to, I want you to put your hand in front of your mouth right now, and I just want you to say your name. What do you, what do you feel on your hand? Every letter, every word that you speak, breath. That's all it simply means. Now, it simply means that, but oof, that's a big idea. The word Paul uses here is a compound word. It's the Greek word theopneustos. 
It's the combination of two words that we're probably very familiar with. The first one looks like theos, which means what? God. And the second word is, you don't say a pneustos, sorry, the P is silent, but pneustos, which means breath, wind, spirit. It's the word that we get words like pneumonia and pneumatics, and which the Bible uses to talk about the spirit or pneuma. Guys, it is, it is such a unique word here that Paul uses in talking. It's in here inspired, but breath of God, that it is the only place that we find this word in the New Testament. And furthermore, it's the only time that we see this word used in major writing at all. Theopneustos. As Pastor Brian Loritz puts it, Paul is telling us that all scripture, I love the way he says this, is the sovereign exhalings of a holy God. Guys, the words we read here every Sunday and that you ought to be reading every single day of your life are his words spoken centuries ago that are still moving and living and changing things in people today. Guys, whenever God opens up his mouth without fail, people listen and things happen. I came across a story this week of the famous British preacher Charles Spurgeon, and he was tasked in his preaching career to, to preach at the Crystal Palace. I have a picture of it up here. It's no longer in existence, but it was just a beautiful, magnificent place. I think it's said that that day that he preached, he preached to nearly 30,000 people in this Crystal Palace. And so you can imagine, that's weighty. Even on a great preacher like Charles Spurgeon. And so he came in the night before and he was just trying to do a little bit of a sound check and see how the acoustics of the room worked. And he simply just pre he just simply said the phrase out of the book of John, Behold the Lamb of God. The acoustics were perfect. And he kept just checking that. Behold the Lamb of God. And unbeknownst to him, as a story came out later, there was a custodian up in the the top rafters of the Crystal Palace. And it says this, that towards the end of his life, by his own testimony, he said he was there that night, that Charles Spurgeon was simply saying, behold, the Lamb of God. And he was so convicted, and he was so moved that he said right there in that moment, he repented of all of his sins, and it changed his life completely. And you guys are like, what? Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold the breathed out scripture of God. It is no ordinary book. That's the power. That's the change that God's word can have. As Brian Loritz again says, the quality of our lives, listen to this guys, the quality of our lives is measured not so much by the power of this book, but by our willful submission to this book. See, it doesn't matter, guys. And this is a thing that most people do. It's like, well, I read. I read, I read five days a week, sometimes even six days a week. And I'll read, I'll read three chapters out of this book. Yeah, but here's a question, and Brian asked it, didn't he? to this book so that it would do something in you. 
that you would submit your life to this book and the words of this book because they are the breathed out words of God. It, I, I am convinced that if we actually understood that and we had that in our minds every time we showed up to read the Bible, it would change things. We would live our lives differently. These are the breathed out very words of God. It has to change us. Guys, our lives are not a measure of the ability and the sovereignty of God, which is unmatched. Our lives are a measure of the humility that we display in obeying and opening ourselves up to this word. The quality of our lives is seen in direct proportion to our willingness to sit still and to let God be God. And his word to speak loudly and truly into our lives. George Mueller was a man in England who ran an orphanage. And he said this about the power of opening our lives to the word. He says the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and in our thoughts. I solemnly state this from the experience of 54 years of life. The first three years after conversion, I neglected the word of God. And since I began to search diligently, the blessing has been wonderful. Great has been the blessing from consecutive, diligent, daily study. You see, guys, here's the deal. You could find a lot of books that will give you information. Great, great information. You, you can find a lot of books that you'll sit on a beach and you'll read for recreation. It's just to pass the time away. Many will give you inspiration, but only one book, this book right here, will bring about transformation in your life and mine and anybody's life. Martin Luther says it this way, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. Pastor Skip Heitzig says it's not about how many times you've been through the Bible, but it's about how many times the Bible's been through you. Because that's not enough. Paul doesn't stop there. He continues to talk about the transformative nature of the God-breathed word by not just giving us the uniqueness of God's word, but he talks about the attributes of God's word. There is no liability, there is no shortcoming to God's word. As Paul says it in another one of his letters in Romans 1.16, it is the power. The word there is dunamis, it's where we get our word dynamite. It'll blow you up, saving everyone who believes. It is the power to grow us, to change us, to radically transform us in amazing ways. And he gives four attributes of God's word and what it does in our life here, doesn't he? Teaching is the first one he talks about. Teaching, to give us the way, to guide us into all truth. Or as someone puts it, it has all the fixings of God. I want you to think about like your favorite meal. But don't think about your favorite main dish. Think about all the sides that go with it. That's God's word. Everything that you can think of. All the fixings of God's word are in there. I don't know if you remember from years ago. I vaguely remember this as I was studying this week. You remember a the Prego commercials from back in the day and they're standing there at the oven and usually it's some young kid punk that doesn't know what they're doing and like grandpa or grandma come up who know how to fix spaghetti sauce and they're like, hey, is, is the oregano in there? It's, and, the, and the line was always, it's in there. Oh, well, but, but it, what about the basil? Is it, 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 it's in there. But what about, what about the salt? What about all the good stuff that goes into to the spaghetti sauce that I make? And they say, it's 
in there. And that's what we think when we come to God's word. But, but what, what about how, how should I live? It's in there. But, 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 but what about the way that we think? It's in there. But, but what about the way that we speak? It's in there. It changes everything about, it, about us if we let the word of God do its work. Here, here's what I'm not saying, and I don't want you to be mistaken, because some people will say this. The Bible does not contain everything that you'd like to know about God. But it does tell you everything that you need to know about God. It doesn't answer every question of life, but it does give us the guidance and the knowledge that we need to be saved and to live a life that is pleasing to God. You know that it's believed that of the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, only 50 days of Jesus' life and ministry are recorded in the New Testament. So, so what's that? I'm going to do my math. There you go. 0.039% of Jesus' life and ministry is recorded in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Guys, the Bible doesn't tell us everything exhaustively, but it tells us enough truth about God for us to trust him. Everything that we need to know, what's that, what's that phrase again? It's in there. Guys, God's word has everything we need, even if there are things in there that we may not like. I heard the story of a college student who had come home and he was on break and uh, his, they were passing the food around the table and the fried chicken came around and oh, he just took the gold chicken breast off there and put it on the plate and the mac and cheese came around and he, oh, two big old spoonfuls of that. And then came the collard greens around the table and he said, nope, and he just passed those on. And his, his mama looked at him and she said, you put some greens on your plate, boy. To which, what do you do when mama says to put something on your plate? Put it on your plate. Now the story continues on that he knew that his mom always liked to take an afternoon nap and so he just kind of picked around his plate and ate all the good stuff on the plate and just kind of picked around those greens until mama went off for her nap and what did he do after she went to her nap, got up from the table and went over to the trash can and greens in the trash can. Except for mamas are really good detectives. She found them in the trash can and she said, boy, come here. He said, Mama, I told you I, I don't like your greens. And she said, son, I didn't ask what you ordered. And she said, she, he summarily pulled all of those greens out of the trash can and put them on the plate and said, eat them. Guys, here's the deal. We intuitively understand what that story is about, don't we? we? We do not grow up in life, and we do not get strong in life, and we do not mature in life by just eating sugary and fatty things on the table in the same way that we don't grow up in the faith by only eating the desserts of the word. Guys, we need a, we need a balanced diet to progress from infants to fully grown followers of Jesus Christ. That's why we submit to the whole council. You know what that means, right? The whole That means the greens. You eat them. Throw them in the trash can, pull them back out, eat them. That's what that means. But then Paul brings up a really difficult aspect of God's word. God's word is not just for teaching, but it is also for what I would call redirecting or what some translations would see, say rebuking or reproofing. Those are not pretty words, by the way. 
To rebuke means to stop us in our tracks. In fact, the literal meaning of the word rebuke means to shame us in order to bring about repentance. You're thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. Nobody likes that. Or as Skip Heitzig would put it, God's word has the ability to smack you upside the head from time to time. That doesn't mean that you need to get beat up by the word, but it does mean that this book pushes you and it pulls you. It will uphold and comfort you, but it will also challenge you and convict you. You read one portion of the Bible and it soothes you. Read another portion of the Bible and it slays you. One day you have a wonderful experience of being comforted. Another day you read it and you are confronted by the word, or you should be. Brian already read Hebrews 4.12. It is alive and it is active and it has the ability sharper than any two-edged sword to cut between soul and spirit. Guys, that's a very thin and precise cut. Between joint and marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Let's continue on. It doesn't just teach. It doesn't just redirect or reproof or rebuke us. It corrects us. It turns us around here. The idea, actually, of what Paul is talking about here is to take what is out of alignment and to bring it back into alignment. To take what is broken and to make it whole. Guys, many times when we show up and we read the Bible, it is the thought and the idea that this is going to hurt. Because it takes what is unadjusted in our life and it readjusts it into a position it needs to be in. Sort of like going to the chiropractor. You ever been to the chiropractor before? You're like, man, I am way out of whack here. They just do all kinds of... I mean, like, first time I went to the chiropractor, I was like, oh, my land, this guy's going to break my neck. Like, literally going to break my neck. But, but what it, it kind of has a, like a moment, like, and then you're like, oh, right? Or at least you should. If you're, if you're not getting that sensation, find a different chiropractor, all right? That is the way God's word works. Boom, pierces us. Cracks our neck. And we go, oh, oh, geez, that is so much better. That's how I should have been living this entire time. And then Paul finishes telling us the attributes of God's word, that it's not just for teaching, not just for redirecting or correcting, but it's for training Many translations it will say, training for a life of righteousness, going from a juvenile to an adult. When we get into this book and this book gets into us, it makes us different people and we grow up. He doesn't just stop at the uniqueness of the word or the attributes of the word. He ends this chapter by giving the intended audience and the primary purpose of the word. What does he say here in verse 17? To prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Guys, the truth of what Paul is speaking about here is that before it is used for the equipping of other people, it better be influencing every single one of us on an individual level. You cannot possibly take this word and hope for this word to do anything in anybody else's life if it's not doing something in your life first. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think back when you were growing up, if, did you have someone that you really looked up to, especially like an athlete that you're like, I want to be like, I want to be like Mike, right? Back in the day, it was Michael Jordan. I want to be like Mike. And Michael Jordan or any great athlete back in the day ate what for breakfast? Wheaties. It's only one problem. Has anybody in here ever had Wheaties before? It's like they crushed up cardboard and you put milk on it. The story is told one time that this, this man had, his, his idol growing up was Walter 
Peyton, sweetness himself. And he's had an opportunity one day to go uh, to a Bible study where his dad was a pastor and they asked him to come in and do a chapel service with the Chicago Bears and he invited his son along and it's like, uh, uh, yeah. And right across the table sat Walter Payton. And he said, I was crushed because do you know what Walter Payton was eating for breakfast? Raisin bran. And he said, he literally looked at Walter and he said, Walter, where are the Wheaties at? And he goes, I don't eat those horrible things. Guys, it's the same way when it comes to the word. We, we need to make sure that before the word goes through us, it better get to us. You see, guys, owning a Bible and reading a Bible and bringing pro-Bible is much different than the Bible changing everything about us. You better be buying what you're selling when it comes to the word of God. To illustrate this, consider the life and testimony of Walter Scott, a renowned British novelist. He was on his deathbed, and he said to his secretary, very simply, as he knew he was dying, bring me the book. And knowing that he had many books in his library, she was kind of confused, and she thought to herself and asked, which one? And he simply said this, the book. The Bible is the only book for a dying man. Guys, we don't just read the Bible for knowledge or information. We love the word. We read the word. We meditate on the word to lead us to transformation. And most importantly, as Paul says here, I do not want you to miss this. We read the word to lead us to the Savior, to give us the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in the Savior is how Paul says it here. Plain and simple. Guys, the Bible is a book that leads us to salvation. That's why it is so important. That is why it is no ordinary book. It's been said this way, the study of God's word is not just to give us an enlightened intellect, it's to give us a transformed character. Guys, if you are reading the Bible and your head is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but your heart is not growing, and it's actually getting smaller and smaller and smaller, you're not being led to the central focus of the Bible, the Savior. You are missing the point. Guys, we are, we are not saved by Scripture. We don't place our trust and our faith in Scripture. But we are saved and we trust and place our faith in the God of Scripture, the God who has breathed out all of Scripture. Everything that we need for a quality and effective life is found here in this book. By continually nurturing our lives in God's Word, we will be able to meet all the demands for everything God is calling us to. Every one of us who follows Christ for all of our time on earth is called to keep on learning. There's a story I heard this week too. A very prominent, very famous Bible scholar was a part of a panel that was primarily talking about the Old Testament. And somebody from the audience asked him directly something about the Old Testament. I don't know specifically what it was. It doesn't matter. And his words were this. It may be that I need to do further study of the Old Testament, and I'm very certain of that. You see, there are so many of us who feel like we're very certain about so many things. And the one thing that we can be certain of is that we need to learn this book, these words, more and more every day of our lives. It never stops. We never uh, arrive that we need to be learning God's word, but more importantly, or just as important, we need to be living God's word. 
Guys, we should never stop studying the scriptures, and even more, we should never stop, let them stop studying us. We don't simply get to choose what parts of the Bible we like and which commands we're going to obey. All of the Bible, all scripture is for all people for all time. The Bible gives us truth. It rebukes us for ungodly behavior and beliefs. It corrects us when we stray from the standard of Christ's likeness. It trains us in all the ways to live a godly and righteous life. It meets our deepest needs. It transforms us from the inside out. Guys, we need God's word more than others' observations and suggestions. As John Stott so well put it, Scripture is the chief means which God employs to bring the man of God, the woman of God, to maturity. Guys, the Bible is authentic and consistent. It is errant. It is true. It is not necessarily because of historical or archaeological underpinnings. It is valuable. It is useful. It is fruitful. It is true because it has the power to change a life. It has changed countless lives. That is the greatest testimony for the God-breathed powerful nature of the Bible. It can stand the test of time and scrutiny because the witness and the testimony of its truth is walking around every day and it has for centuries past and centuries to come in your life and in my life. And as such, we need to be people who are led by the truths of this book because we are people who never stop looking at this book. I told you at the beginning I want to take some time this morning and want to allow time if we talk about God's spirit moving and God's spirit moving men to write inspired words of God, why would we not do that this morning? And so I just want to offer up some time. The worship team is welcome to come back up here and get prepared for the end of service, but I, I want to just take some time to give you the opportunity to give your witness, to give your testimony of how God's word has radically changed your life, how it is changing your life today. You're welcome to come up here and use either one of these microphones that are up here on the stage, or we're just going to take a little bit of time to brag on God, to brag on God's word and what it can do in our lives. So I'm simply going to step off the stage right now. The microphone is yours. You said at the beginning, I, we're crazy enough to believe. And I, I feel like if we sat here long enough, and, and you guys know it, you know in your life, that every single one of us has a story, has a testimony of how God has changed us, and specifically how he's done it through his word. And I told you at the beginning, Paul uses the word scripture, and, and Wade just said the word scripture. The word scripture here is very interesting. It's the word graphe. It literally means graph. It's where we get words like autograph and photograph and lithograph. And I think when I look at Scripture and what it does and how it does encourage me and it does challenge me is that the very words of the Bible that you read constantly are God's autograph to us, His signature in our lives. And what we've just done here in a little bit of time is heard from three people. And like I said, you all have the story of how God has taken in your life and he has, he has put his signature on your life. I think the worst thing that we can do in life is to have God's signature on our life and to never show it to anybody. Never be wowed by that. And so my encouragement for you today is as you read that word, you don't read him as just 
words and ink on a page, but you read them as God's self-revelation to us. And that we would take that autograph that God has given to us and we would show it off to the world in our lives, in our witness, in our testimony that we have. We continue singing this morning and we end worship. You'll stand with me. We sing this final song this morning.